Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 155 for August 9th, 2009. Normally when I talk about email, I'm out talking about the BAT, my favorite program. Not this week, though. The open-source email program Thunderbird doesn't offer all the flexibility of the BAT, but it is a full-featured email application, and it's one I think should be a contender if you're thinking about migrating from some older application. Eudora, for example, hasn't released a new version since shortly before the most recent Ice Age. Despite claims to have a version 8 in beta, it doesn't appear to be anywhere near launch. That's too bad, because Eudora was my favorite email program until shortly before 2000. If you're looking for something a bit more up-to-date, Thunderbird might be what you're looking for. And it's not hard to set up. Although various email applications add a variety of extensions and other useful functions, the basic operation of any email application, or MUA, will be the same. Wikipedia says a mail user application is only active when a user runs it, so messages arrive on the mail transfer agent server. Unless the mail user application has access to the server's disk, messages are stored on a remote server, and the application has to request them on behalf of the user. That's techno-geek speak for the email application has to ask the server to give it the messages. The first step in getting Thunderbird set up is creating a connection between the mail user application and the mail transfer agent. You need to specify whether it's a POP3 or IMAP server for inbound mail, and you need to specify the SMTP server for outbound mail. Every email application will have these settings, and each will want the same kinds of information. In setting up Thunderbird, you'll be offered the opportunity to set up a default signature and to establish a variety of other settings and defaults. As with most mail user applications, Thunderbird handles both email and newsgroup communications, so you'll be asked to set up one account or the other, or both. Most people will set up an email account. A smaller number will set up a newsgroup account. Next, Thunderbird will ask you to name the account. This should be just a plain English name, something that makes sense to you. Main account, for example. You'll also need to specify the email address that the account will use. Then you specify the name of the server that delivers your incoming mail, and specify whether it's POP3, which stands for Post Office Protocol Version 3, or IMAP4, Internet Mail Application Protocol Version 4. POP is still the most commonly used server type, but IMAP is increasingly popular because it allows users to store messages on the server. That means you can access the messages from anywhere. The next step will be to specify the username. Depending on the server that holds your mail, this could be the first part of your email address, the part before the at sign, or it might be the entire email address. For some servers, it could be something else entirely. To find out, check with your system administrator. Then you need to give the account a name. Then you need to give the account a name. This is another plain English name, something that makes sense to you. The computer, the servers, and Thunderbird don't care what you use here. It's for your benefit. Thunderbird will now show you what you've set up so far. At this point, you'll be able to receive mail, but not to send anything. Sending mail requires a simple mail transport protocol server, SMTP. 
That's what you'll be asked to set up next. The SMTP server is the one you'll want to keep under close control. That's because you don't want some spammer to discover the server settings and start sending spams from your address. This is different from the spams you get that appear to come from your address. They really don't. The address is simply forged. But you certainly don't want actual spam to come from your address. So, in the next dialog box, you'll specify a server name. Again, plain English. It's for your use only. And the actual name of the server. That has to be the exact name of the server. It'll look something like smtp.someservername.com or .info or .org. Or instead of SMTP, it might be mail. This varies from one system to another. The port will typically be 25 or 625, and you should set up authentication for sending mail. Many servers today require authentication. Those that don't probably will within the next few years. That's all that's required to set up Thunderbird or any other email application. So if you find an email application you want to try, go ahead, install it. It's not a big deal to set one up. A surprising number of people, though, seem to be befuddled by what should be a relatively simple process. After all, email is the oldest protocol on the Internet, and the setup process isn't very complicated. So don't let the terminology intimidate you. The process overall is both logical and pretty easy to understand. Survey says 75% of computer users spurn protection. Okay, so maybe spurn is too strong a word here. Most people probably don't reject computer backup with contempt, but most people don't back up their systems or back them up so infrequently that they might as well not be backing them up at all. The Diffusion Group, a research organization, says that more than 16% of computer users never back up their computers. About 38% do a backup once or twice per year, and just under 21% perform a monthly backup. Would it bother you if you lost all of the files you've created or changed in the last month? Six months? Year? Would it bother you to lose everything that's on your computer? The numbers from TDG are nearly four years old, but there's nothing to suggest that people have suddenly changed their attitudes toward backup. Now, I've described my process in the past, an attached USB drive that keeps daily or more frequent copies of every file I'm working on. This is good for quick recovery, but it is useless as protection against a thief or a fire. I also keep a full backup on an external hard drive that I store at the office. I'm supposed to update this backup once a week, but I rarely do, and by the way, shame on me. I also use Carbonite, the online backup service that costs less than $50 per year to store all the files on my computer. I really don't like the idea of having to recreate any of the work I've already done. And some of the files on the computer, photos from the Ohio State Fair, for example, simply cannot be replaced. The Diffusion Group says about 11% of users back up their data once per week, a little more than 4% back up files several times a week, and just under 3% back up files once per day. Oddly, almost 7% of the people who replied to the survey said they weren't sure. How can you not be sure if you're backing up your computer? In 2005, 61% of those who did back up their data said they used CDs. 27% said they used DVDs. And 33% copied content to an external hard drive. At the time, only 6% were backing up to an online storage service. 9%, probably office workers, copied their files to a server. And 8% used network-attached storage. I would expect the number of people backing up to CDs today would be, oh, probably 10% or less. 
DVD usage is probably up, but it really should be down. I hope that more people are using online services or at least external hard drives. The survey, by the way, included 1,100 broadband Internet users nationally. It's not surprising that most of the data on your computer isn't active. By that, I mean you probably haven't accessed it, looked at it, listened to it, read it, or edited it for at least six months. After all, how often do you open up a directory with family pictures from 1999? But would you miss them if they were no longer there? Because many people no longer have prints made, I have to think that most people would be more than mildly annoyed if all of their images suddenly disappeared. That's why backup is so important, and that's why I consider a multi-part backup essential. The local hot backup drive is handy and fast, but it's not secure. A thief, a fire, a tornado, or an earthquake could take out both the computer and the adjacent backup. And yes, I did mean to say earthquake. Ohio is in the expected major damage area the next time the New Madrid fault goes. As much as I like online storage, I know that recovery would be slow because of the download speed. Some providers limit the data you can store. Most are not responsible for any lost content. And if you're using an online service, you're depending on a company that could be acquired or go out of business with little warning. So I consider Carbonite to be a safety net, but not the full answer. The fastest and most secure backup is an external hard drive that you store in a building that's at least several miles from your computer. You will need to transport this device to your computer and perform the backup at regular intervals, and that's the primary disadvantage. It requires your active participation. DVDs can play a part, too. Critical current working files can be backed up regularly to DVDs that you store in a secure location. But be careful where you store those disks or external hard drives. Some backup programs can encrypt data. If yours does, then you don't need to be too concerned about where you store the media or the device. The location should be secure, of course, because you don't want to find that those drives or disks are no longer around just exactly when you need them. But you won't have to be too concerned if you lose a DVD or even an entire hard drive because nobody would be able to read it. And don't store drives or disks in a fireproof safe thinking that they will survive a fire. They won't. Fireproof safes are rated based on their ability to preserve paper. Paper can withstand relatively high temperatures for relatively long periods. CDs, DVDs, and electronic gear cannot following a fire unless you have purchased a very expensive fireproof safe that is rated for electronic media you're likely to find little more than a solidified blob of plastic that was once a stack of dvds so store them in your bank's safe deposit box windows 7's release date is approaching quickly and microsoft has announced the final packaging and pricing schemes there are still too many choices the price is still too high I say that particularly in light of Apple's sub-$50 upcoming new version and the even lower price of Linux, $0. Microsoft has announced a Windows 7 family pack that will allow the home premium version of the operating system to be installed on three home computers for $150. But what if you want the professional or the ultimate version? And by the way, that special price will be available only while supplies last. Yeah, as if Microsoft is only going to make a limited number of copies of the software. As for versions, there are still five. Starter, Home Basic, Home Premium, Professional, and Ultimate. If you buy one and later realize that you need one of the more complete versions, you can have it. All you have to do is fork over another 80 to $130. Uh, is that per machine, or does this apply to the family pack? 
Microsoft is sometimes unjustly accused of stealing ideas from Apple, but here's one I wish they would steal. If you make an operating system, make an operating system, just one. When somebody wants to buy your operating system, sell them your operating system, not a piece of it. If you buy one of those cute little netbook computers with Windows Starter on it, yes, you can upgrade it. Use the Anytime Upgrade feature by paying another $80, and Microsoft will send you... Now, wait, don't get ahead of me here and think that Microsoft is going to send you a DVD with a new operating system on it. No, it's not going to do that. Microsoft will send you a code that will unlock the Arrow and Media Center features that are already on your computer, but not activated. Thus, it appears that OEMs will be able to continue playing the same kinds of silly games that Microsoft let them play with Vista. Put a crippled version of the operating system on the computer, label it Windows 7, and don't tell anyone that to get the features that they think they're buying, they're going to have to pay another $80. Worse still, there is no easy way to get from Windows XP to Windows 7. If you've been suffering with Vista for the past couple of years, Windows 7 will install as an upgrade. But if you've stuck with Windows XP, Microsoft seems to want to punish you. The only ways to leap from XP to 7 involve either formatting the drive, installing Windows 7, and then reinstalling all of your applications, or installing Windows 7 to dual boot with Windows XP, or buying a new computer. Thanks, Microsoft. Thanks for thinking of your customers. In short circuits, Twitter was shut down briefly this week, and Facebook was crippled for a while. Some technology-unaware reporters said that Twitter had been hacked. That wasn't even close. Instead, a denial-of-service attack made Twitter inaccessible for several hours. That attack appears to have originated in Russia or Georgia. Facebook had some problems, too, but it was less clear exactly what caused them. A denial-of-service attack usually uses hundreds or thousands of zombie computers to send bogus signals to the target, Twitter in this case. The victim's server, not knowing which requests for service are legitimate and which are from botnets, tries to respond to all of them and slowly grinds to a halt. Network engineers can eventually filter out the bogus request, but doing so can take hours. In this case, though, the attack was by means of spam email messages, and appears to have been the result of a political battle between Russia and Georgia, with each side trying to silence the other's propaganda. And also on Thursday, Facebook saw service disruptions resulting from a denial-of-service attack, but full service was restored in just a couple of hours. With competition heating up between Google and Apple, Google CEO Eric Schmidt has resigned from Apple's board of directors. The two companies are each in the mobile phone market. Both are in, or soon will be in, the operating system market. Schmidt and Apple CEO Steve Jobs are friends, but Schmidt says that he found he was increasingly having to recuse himself from votes on corporate issues. The departure wasn't really a surprise. The collision course has been clear for months, and the Federal Trade Commission has been investigating the close relationship between Apple and Google with regard to antitrust laws. Earlier this week, the Federal Communications Commission said it was investigating Apple's rejection of the Google Voice application for iPhone. Google wanted to allow iPhone users to bypass AT&T's cellular network and communicate via the Internet using voice over IP technology. Apple, of course, didn't like that idea and took measures to block it. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. 
And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.